Well, good morning again, and welcome to James, the book of James. We've been in James now for a few weeks, as we could say. We're coming to the end of a section of James that deals with partiality or favoritism. And I asked the question last week, or, or you could imagine James's hearers, these many churches that he's writing to, asking him the question, well, what's the big deal about favoritism? Last week we had part one, this week we'll have part two. As we finish up this section, verses 1 all the way through verses 13. Now, we've been looking at this particular section, and we've talked about how in verses 1 through 4, that James lays out a rebuke. He says that partiality is, is existing in these churches. And he says that this partiality, uh, they've, they've made themselves, and when you engage in partiality, you make yourselves an evil judge. Because you look at the, the, the just superficial aspects about a person. And just like an evil judge who discriminates, they, they look at the, the superficial aspects of a person's case and they make a judgment based off those superficial elements without bothering to dig down deeper. And that's what James says about you if you engage in partiality. It's a, a rebuke, a warning. And then we came down to verses basically 5 through 13. We looked at 5 through 7 last week. And in 5 through 13, he lays out three pillars and he waits, makes his argument, or he lays out his case against favoritism, against partiality. And he says, why is it a big deal? Well, last week we talked about favoritism is a big deal, or it's, it's inconsistent with God's choice. Because when you think about God's choice and who are primarily believers, the majority of believers are poor, and God has chosen. God has chosen the things of this world that the world despises, the world hates, the world thinks, of, thinks they're nothing. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, and he speaks about us believers. We're what the world despises. And, and his point, or James's point, is if you show favoritism to, to the poor, right, then you're, you're disregarding God's choice, but in reality, you you are showing partiality or discrimination against, against you, yourself and others like you because in the world's eyes, we are considered worthless and nothing. Our lives are considered a waste because we choose to follow Jesus Christ. But James also says in verses 5-7 through seven that favoritism is inconsistent with your new name. And the new name is the name of Christian. When we're baptized into the body of Christ, we, we become Christians. We're, that's who describes us. It should be the name that describes us. We are like Christ. And Christ loved the poor. Christ loved those who were downtrodden. He spent time with sinners and tax collectors. Right? He, he reached out to those that were the outcasts of society, the, the lepers, the blind. And so as believers, we should be representing Jesus Christ, and we do because we are called the name Christian. And so James continues, and, and remember, his desire in the book of James is that you would have a faith that works, that you wouldn't be a, a Christian in name only, that when others see you, they would see someone who truly represents God and His love for man. 
And so James wants their, their, their belief, their faith, to actually influence their conduct. Imagine that. Now, at the restaurant I worked at for many years, we required our employees to dress uniformly. We gave them uniforms, and we expected them to dress a certain way. It was, we was very clear about what we expected. Our expectations were very clear when we hired them, even when we interviewed them, about what would be required. We required girls. The ladies had to have their hairs pulled back. Uh, guys and girls, they were allowed one piercing in the ear, nowhere else. Uh, they had to be clean-shaven if they were guys. Obviously, they didn't apply to girls. They had to have their, their shirts tucked in. They had to be clean, right? Now, they had to have no visible tattoos. That was one thing we required. It was, it was our uniform standard. And now, I would have one of my junior leaders occasionally ask me, why am I such a stickler? Because if someone came in and they couldn't fix the issue, I would send them home to go fix it and come back. And they would, the junior leaders would ask me, well, why, why are you such a stickler for, for these rules? And I would tell them, look, if we don't hold to a standard, then we don't have one. Right? If you're willing to compromise on a small point, you'll compromise on all the points. And so James makes that argument here in James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, as we're going to be looking at today. And he, and he says the standard for the Christian is God's Word. And if you disobey God's law and you ignore aspects of God's commands that you don't like, then your standard becomes a worldly standard. It becomes a standard of your own making. And so he's saying if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, which is what you know is inconsistent with God's Word, then you're following worldly ideas about people how the world values people and what their worth is according to a worldly standard, not a godly standard. And so living apart from God's standard means that you're going to live your life based on your emotions, how you feel about a person or a particular group. Or you're going to live by your reasoning and, and what you think about a group and the, the, the decisions and the, and the reasonings that you've made. But both of these are highly subjective, right? Feelings, reasoning, they're all, they're all corrupted. They're all influenced by the world we live in and our sinful flesh. But see, God's Word is the only unchanging standard, and we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at God's Word and what it says and how it says we are to treat others. And we're going to see that favoritism the third pillar is inconsistent with God's Word. So let's go ahead and look at the text. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning. Verse 8. If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law, which according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
So James, first of all, in, in verse 8, he opens up this section. The, this section uh, we're going to be talking about is the royal standard of love. He lays out this principle in verse 8. The royal standard of love. And he says, if, however, and he's drawing this contrast with the previous verses where it's talking about he's admonishing them and he's pointing out the inconsistency of of how they're treating the rich and they're elevating the rich, even though the rich have have dragged them in the courts and are blaspheming the name of Christ. He says, but if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scriptures, you are doing well. Now, he knows just like every preacher knows, that you're preaching on a particular topic, there's going to be people in the congregation that are going to wait, 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 I'm, I'm not showing favoritism. I'm not showing partiality. I'm not, I'm not discriminating. And James adds this caveat, but he also uses it to show the standard. He adds this caveat and he says, look, yes, if you are keeping this royal law, if you are keeping this standard, you are doing well. Well, what's the royal law? Well, it emphasizes the absolute and binding authority of the one who gave it. It's the binding and absolute authority of the Word of God. Because it's royal in the sense that it comes from the King. He's already mentioned in verse 5 that, that the poor of this world, that, that we are heirs of His kingdom. Right? So it's a, it's a royal law, it's a kingly law. And you think about it, it's the summation of, of all of the Word of God, a summation of Jesus' teachings. And when the word for law is used here in the New Testament, it's used to describe the entire body of the commandments. When you look at the royal law, it's, it's what we are to live by. In Matthew 22, verse 34, But the Pharisees heard that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, And they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. And he said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets." And so the royal law is, is you're loving God as He deserves to be loved. Well, your heart, your soul, and your mind, and you're loving others as yourself. That sums up the law. That's the royal law. And James says it's according to the Scriptures. So the Scriptures are the, uh, just another synonym excuse me, for the royal law. It's, it's, it's complete and total will for you as a believer. It's God's will for His people to reveal who He is, what he's done, and his expectations for man. James is very specific. And he says, look, if you're fulfilling the royal law, according to the Scripture, and he quotes it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James is quoting Leviticus 19, 18 here. And he, and he says, look, if you're loving your neighbor, you're doing well. And what's this love? Right? If this is the standard, what's the standard? The standard is love. It's, it's a purposeful, sacrificial love that, that seeks another person's welfare. It seeks their protection, their provision. It seeks their spiritual growth. It's agape love, a sacrificial love. Philippians 2, 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another 
as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. That's agape love, right? And one of the things to make clear, and this is often misconstrued by psychologists and even some Christian authors, Jesus isn't saying, and the Word of God isn't saying that you have to love yourself first. We need less self-love, not more. Because self-love comes natural to us. Ephesians 5.29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. Yet you, it's a basic human nature to love yourself, to, to esteem yourself. People say that what you need is more self-esteem. No, what you need is more repentance over your self-pride, self-righteousness. You see, we all selfishly love ourselves, right? We we clothe ourselves. We feed ourselves. We want to have pleasure for ourselves, entertainment for ourselves. You see, we we take care of ourselves. But love is, is thinking about your neighbor, thinking about others as more important than yourself. That's the key to a great marriage. You think about marriage and doing marriage counseling with Young couples, you're thinking about getting married, and, and they have this, uh, this oh, I love him, I love her. You know, they have this, it's this wonderful, flighty passion. And there's nothing wrong with, with passion. Passion is something that you, as a marriage, you cultivate it. And, it. and it wanes, and it goes, and it flows back and forth, and you have to cultivate that passion in your, in your marriage. But that love is a, it's a commitment characterized by self-sacrifice. It's that commitment, that covenant you made before the Lord that you would love, honor, and cherish that other person no matter what, until death do you part. And that, that love that you show is demonstrated in your actions. Right? You, you love that person. If you say you love that person, then, then what are you doing to demonstrate it? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody reads that section and there's nothing wrong with reading that session at weddings. Everybody has it read. But Paul is rebuking the Corinthians. He's saying, you know, love, love does not take account of wrong. They were doing this. Love is not prideful. Love is not arrogant. They were guilty of all these things. They were saying that they love each other, but their actions toward each other did not demonstrate that. So you, you, you love others. Think about it this way. You don't, you don't want yourself to be killed. You don't want yourself to be abused, right? mistreated. You don't want injustice to happen to yourself. Why would you yourself do that to someone else? Why would you want to see that happen to someone else? You see, we love others as, as we love ourselves. It's more important. And just to make sure we all understand who our neighbor is, our neighbor is, is everyone. Anyone you come in contact with, even Jesus even makes it, said, or makes it include and expands it to include our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, right? We, we, we even love those that don't love us, that hate us. Many of you know the, the parable of the Samaritan and Jesus' story where he talks about the, the, the Samaritans on the side of the road and he's, sorry, the the sorry, the person that's mistreated is on the side of the road and, and Jew after Jew mis, uh, just ignores him and the Samaritan comes along and sees him and bandages his wounds and, and pays for his treatment. And, and, the, and the Samaritans would have been despised. You see this in Luke 10, 
by the Jews. But here the Samaritan is the one that actually treats somebody with love. Jesus said, that's who your neighbor is, someone in need. Those around you that come in contact with you. I love this. James, just he's drawing out this royal standard and he says, if you are obeying this, if you're following this standard, you're doing well. You're doing right. You're doing excellently. You're loving God. You're loving others. And, and just to be sure you understand that this standard is impossible apart from a regenerated heart and strength that the Holy Spirit provides. We don't see this kind of love in the world. We see hatred. We see riots. We see racism. We see all those things in the world of discrimination. You see, love, love sums up the whole law. In Romans 13, verse 8, Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the whole law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So love sums it up. In 1569, Dirk Williams, he was an Anabaptist and he lived in the Netherlands. And it was a dangerous time because if you're an Anabaptist, you don't hold to infant baptism. And in the Netherlands in that time, there was a split between the Catholics and the Protestant. And they both held to infant baptism, Presbyterians and the Catholics. And so he began preaching and teaching that infant baptism is meaningless. And it is meaningless. And he used to teach that it was, it was wrong. And so one should only be baptized upon profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, he was arrested. He was put in prison. And he escaped from his prison using ropes of knotted rags. And using this means, he was able to climb out the window of the castle that he was held in. And he climbed down onto the frozen moat below because of his his imprisonment, he weighed a lot less, a lot less calories he was ingesting, and he's able to walk along the large moat as he was trying to escape, and a guard saw him, and the guard followed him, and the guard broke through the ice, and the guard was splashing and, and drowning, and he cried out, help, help. Well, Dirk turned around, and he rescued the guard, and was subsequently arrested, and he was sent back to prison. And he was burned at the stake not long afterwards. You see, I, re, I, I bring this story up just to say that doing the right thing will cost you. Right? Following God's standard of love is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit's help. It is a love that sacrifices one's own desires, one's own pleasure, your finances, your time, your energy for the sake of someone else. This is God's standard. It's the royal law. It's the, it's the kingly law given by the king. Christ's commandments summed up. Love God. Love others. Love the Lord your God, rather your heart, your soul, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And if you do this, you will not show favoritism. And you will be doing well. So that's the royal law. James just begins and he, he commends these believers, but he, he lays out the standard that's required for us as Christians if we want to honor the Lord. That's the royal standard of love. And then we have the, the favoritism violates God's standard in verse 9. He said, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. And he says the word here for favoritism is the same word that's used up in verse 1. Only it's in verb form. He says your speaking, your actions, your judgments, all of this, they demean, they, they, they demean a person or they elevate a person based on superficial things. And James says, if here, if you show partiality, he's assuming that this is true in their lives of these churches. It's continuing, continually excuse me, showing favoritism as a deliberate practice. In fact, he says, if you are continuing to show partiality or favoritism, he says, you are committing sin. Literally, the word there means working sin. Right? We can have good works. Or we can have, what? Evil works. He's talking about working sin as a practice. It's the same word in, used in verse 20, where it says, The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, or does not work the righteousness of God. So you're achieving sin, you're working sin continually. This isn't just a, a one-time mistake, one-time stumble. The Greek makes it very clear that this is a, a continual, habitual favoritism, a discrimination against people. Discrimination, a, a, a hatred, a partiality in your heart. And he says, what is it? He describes it. There's actually two different words to describe it. He says it's, it's sin and transgressing. But the sin is, is, is missing the mark. Many of you have know that definition, have heard it before. Missing the mark, it's, it's, but missing God's standard. You're not living up to God's standard. It's deliberate. It's premeditated. It's continual actions against others that show partiality. But guess what? It comes from the heart. So it shows a heart mindset, a, a, a snobbery, a discrimination in the heart. You see, their lives were characterized by breaking God's law. Now, what James is saying is that there are some among these believers, just like in every church, there's always goats among the sheep. And James is saying, look, if there are people among you, and if you're one of these people, that your life is continually one of favoritism and partiality and discrimination and hatred for others, anger towards others, then that's evidence of unbelief. It's not evidence of, of having a, a renewed and regenerated heart. It's not in the, in evidence of, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about a, a stumble from time to time. We all stumble. James is talking about a life lived this way. And that's what I want to make sure you understand. And he says that if you, sorry, he says if you show partiality, you, you demonstrate it, you live that life, it's great quote in one of the commentaries I was re reading says, it's, it's not a trifling fault. It is a foul travesty. 
And so the main thrust here is against pseudo-Christians or chinos, Christians in name only, Christians that they, they say they're a Christian or they say they have faith, but you look at their life, their life is one of, of partiality, of favoritism, of discrimination, where instead of showing love to others, they, they, they show hatred to others. They're always goats among the sheep. They deceive themselves into thinking that because they're church goers, they're truly Christians. Their hearts remain unchanged and their lives are inconsistent with God's standard, His Word. Think about it this way. Judas was among the disciples for three years. Now, Jesus knew his heart, but He fooled the disciples. Right? He was, they trust Him to the point they let Him handle all the money. He was the treasurer. John tells us he used to pilfer. But they did this. They didn't find this out till later. Right? Judas was a goat among the sheep, a heart full of unbelief. Look, favoritism in all its synonyms. And this is the thing. Just because I'm not using a, a word that is common doesn't mean even as Christians we are guilty of this from time to time. But, but especially if, it, if, it's a, if it's an aspect of your life. You need to say, am I truly a believer? And there's all these synonyms. There's partiality. There's discrimination. Racism. Ageism. Sexism. Feminism. They're all equally evil. Because all these isms, what do they do? They pit one group against another. They discriminate against whether it's by sex, whether it's by ethnicity, whether it's by age. That's favoritism, right? That's partiality. There's nothing good in those things. Those things are not from God. They're from the sinful heart of man. And they go back to Cain. 1 John 4.20 If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So favoritism violates God's standard, but James goes even further. He said, not only are you working sin, you pseudo-Christians, but you are convicted by the law as transgressors. He says you are being convicted as you're, you're continuing living your life, a life of partiality and discrimination and of favoritism, you are continually being convicted. It actually pictures the law, depicts the law as a, as a witness testifying against you in court. Your, your lifestyle, when compared to God's standard, is continually being shown to have come up short. God's standard is the one that is continually being violated. It's a legal sense, and, and you're guilty. You're guilty before God of not loving others. Now, brethren, even though this is primarily towards those in the church that that aren't believers, that are pseudo-Christians, it still applies to us in the sense that yet we are guilty at times of partiality and favoritism. Right? We break God's law and, and God's standard, His Word shows us. Right? Shows us the imperfections in our life. 
And he says, you're a transgressor. Transgressor is, is a direct disobeying of the command of Scripture. It's a defiant rebellion. So the, there's sin, there's transgression. Look, just because you believe something doesn't mean you're going to live by it. I read a, a survey the other day. It says a survey of Americans and 71% of all those surveyed believed in hell. It's pretty good, 71%. But of that, one half of 1%, so 0.5%, believe they are likely to end up there. Now, 76% in those surveyed believed in heaven. And 64% say they are on their way there. Look, most people will be shocked if you tell them that their good works are as filthy rags when compared to the perfect standard of God's righteousness and His holiness, the perfect standard of His Word. Their lives are self-centered, their lives are self-righteous, and they're leading them to an eternity in the lake of fire. Look, just because you believe that something exists, like heaven or hell, or that someone exists, like Jesus Christ, it means nothing if your life is not accompanied by a demonstration of the faith that you have. If you say it, if you say you have faith and live it out. Look, a continual lifestyle of favoritism, discrimination, racism, feminism, sexism, ageism, all these things is a clear indication that you have a lack of love for others. It's a disregard of the clear standard of love. And if you're an unbeliever and you're listening to this and this is your life, then there is an opportunity for you to confess your sins or repent. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. Be forgiven of your sins. And saved from God's judgment and the, the guilt that is upon you. Brethren, here and you're, you're a believer then, and you're guilty of these things, then repent. Realize that we all stumble. This is the Word of God, and this is the standard that, that we are to love others above ourselves. Love others as God loves them. The only right response is humility, right? A confession that we are guilty. Look, so we have God's royal standard, right? And then we have favoritism violates God's standard. And then we have partial obedience is disobedience. Look down in verse 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole point, or excuse me, the whole law, and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Well, James is saying that partial obedience is disobedience. So, so don't think, all right, well, well pastor... You know, I don't murder. I don't, I don't commit adultery. I'm okay. He's imagining that these, these pseudo-Christians and even believers responding in this way. And so he lays out this general principle. And you can tell he switches back from the second person, plural, in verse 9, to kind of a third person because he lays out this general statement in verse 10. And he says, For whomever keeps the whole law, Right? You, you're guarding yourself against violation of the law. You're, you're, there's a diligence there where you're, 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 you're trying to obey all God's commands and yet you, you stumble. 
This is to fall, right? Not a deliberate act. Believers, you're not deliberately sinning, but we can sin through our inattention, our carelessness, right? You, you, James says, but you, you stumble. You become guilty of all the law. And this is the key. He says you become, this is an abiding condition of being guilty. You're, you're subject to the law. You're, you're liable to the law. You're, you're accountable to God for your sin. And it's judicial guilt. And what James is saying is, look, there's a unity to the law. There's unity to God's word. You can't pick and choose what you want to obey. If you break one point, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And this is the way you have to look at it, because this is God's word. This is God's will for you. If you disregard God's will in one point, you're disregarding His whole will for you. So you don't think you can pick and choose, I don't want to obey that. I don't like what God's word says here, or I don't care what God says here. You see that in even Christian denominations that they like to pick and choose of Scripture what they want to believe. But if you break one point, you break them all. There's a unity to God's Word. So we teach the whole counsel of God. Even the hard parts that, that go against what our society says. So you keep the whole law and you stumble. You become guilty. Because it goes back to if you'll break one commandment, you have the attitude where you don't care about one commandment or you're not... You're not particular about that commandment, you will break any of them and all of them. See, God's word is God's will and disobey God's word and you're disobeying God. Partial obedience is disobedience. You can't pick and choose. You're guilty of breaking the whole law. And I'll give you an illustration. When I was a kid, I decided to play baseball in the street in front of my home. We lived on uh, the end of a street. And there were houses all around, and my dad, he had warned me. He said, son, don't, don't play baseball in the street. You might hit a window. Well, you know, seven or eight years old, you, all, you don't always, right? You always listen to your parents. So we decided to go play baseball. And sure enough, hit a foul ball. A ball went in a direction I didn't intend. And it went, and it hit one of the window panes in front of my house. We had a multi-pane window, multiple panes. Hit one of them, and it cracked one of them. And we're going to get my dad, and my dad wasn't too happy with me. And he, he looked at me and he said, son, you, you've broken the window. Now, you know, seven, eight-year-old, you, you try to argue, try to justify yourself. But dad, dad, I only cracked one of the panes. I didn't break the whole window. And he just looked at me and said, look, you ignored my warning. You ignored my words. You broke the window. Brethren, look, it only takes one breaking of God's commandments to make you a lawbreaker, right? To break any of God's commandments makes you guilty of breaking the law as a whole, of defying God's will and His authority. And as guilty sinners, it's only through what? Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's only through His blood, His atoning work, that our guilt is removed and God's wrath is appeased. Right? Praise God, Romans 8, 1, where there's no condemnation any longer in Christ Jesus. But there's, for us as believers, there's consequences. It's a break in fellowship, break in fellowship with God because of our sins, a break in fellowship with other people because sin separates and sin destroys relationships. 
You see, partial obedience is disobedience. And then he just gives two commandments, and he throws these in here in verse 11 as an example. He says, these commandments demonstrate what there's a unity. And he says, okay, well, I'm not committing adultery, but uh, he says, well, if you don't commit adultery, but you commit murder, you're still a transgressor. He's just drawing out that you can't pick and choose. Because you think about it like this. All sin is from a lack of love, right? Think about that. I'll start right there. All sin is from a lack of love. If you, if you love God, Jesus says, do you love me? You what? You obey my commandments. So when we choose to disobey God, it shows a, a lack of love for God. When we sin against other people, and we discriminate or show partiality or in all of our, in our anger, we treat others unkindly. What are we showing? A lack of love for them. It's a sin. It's a lack of love. Right? Obeying one commandment is not enough. He wants you to have, and this is James' point, He wants you to live your life by the royal law. He wants you to love God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And He wants you to love others as yourself. You know, about a year ago, my wife asked my daughter, who was three at the time, to clean up her toys. She responded, no, thank you. Now, her politeness was, was good. She was learning to respond politely, but polite disobedience is still disobedience. Partial obedience is still disobedience, the principle of trying to teach our kids. You know, James is giving these commands. He's trying to illustrate his point. The Jews, in fact, believed that if they obeyed one of these commandments, they were doing really well. In fact, they emphasized the Sabbath so much that if they believed if you obey the Sabbath, that you could build up enough righteousness that it would cover the fact that you broke all the other commandments. For the Jews, it was a, it was a balance and law system. I could obey some of these commandments. Yeah, I'm not good at the adultery one, but I'm good at not murdering, so, and I'm good at keeping the Sabbath. So you know what? I've got enough righteousness that I can overcome the fact that I'm breaking these other commandments. But James here is showing that God's requirement is perfect obedience. And that is absolutely impossible. That's why Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That if you think you can live up to God's law apart from Christ, you will stand condemned. Brethren, we have God's Word. We have a standard. Disregarding or disobeying God's Word because we just don't like it or we find it hard, it's not an option. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't take rebellion against God lightly. We shouldn't take partiality against God lightly. Continued disobedience and a lack of love for others are evidence of an unbelieving heart. Search your heart. Examine yourself. The final point James makes it's just a duty as a Christian in verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act that those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. 
And he says, so speak and so act. He's talking about a continual speaking, a a continual acting in view of God's judgment that awaits. He's calling you believers and calling us to be genuine doers of the word. You live your life or you speak and act according to God's standard, not your own. He says, so speak and act as those who are be judged by the law of liberty. One thing I think we often forget, as James says, you are to be judged, is that as believers, we will face a future judgment. Now, it's not going to determine whether we are Christian or not, but it's about accountability. So there is accountability for you as a Christian. 2 Corinthians is a, is a great passage. In fact, I encourage you to turn with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. In chapter 5, Paul is talking about the, the, the temporal compared to the eternal. And in verse 9, he says, Therefore we have as our ambition whether to be home or absent, in other words, to be with the Lord or on this earth, we have as our ambition to please Him. What a godly ambition, right? Verse 10, and this is why, he says, this is a motivating factor. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to believers. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, whether according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's talking about what's called the Bema judgment seat in which we will stand before Jesus Christ and we will have our lives, our motives, our actions, our speech played back on that heavenly DVD player and our motives and our hearts and our actions will be examined and the quality of our work, quality of our life will be compared to God's standard. It's, it's an accountability thing. And that's what James is saying here. It's like, look, you need to speak and you need to act knowing that you're going to be judged by the law of liberty. You're going to be held up to that standard. And I love the way he throws in liberty in there. Because God's word is not a burden. Right? When you live God's way, it saves you from so much pain and heartache. So much sin. It's not a... It's not a a detriment, it's not a burden, it's a, we do it out of an act of love, knowing that God's will is best for us. John 8, 31 and 32, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Right? We're free from the, the burden and the guilt of sin. You're free to obey God fully and rest in the joy, knowing that you'll be with Him forever. And there are going to be rewards. That's where that future judgment comes in. And what a joyous time. We we won't feel a a sinful envy towards others when we reap that future reward. We'll have a joyous time in Jesus Christ and there will be rewards based on how we live. And by the way, those rewards are based on faithfulness. It's not based on whether you were a preacher or not. It's based on faithfulness. There's going to be plenty of of older ladies who've been faithful prayer warriors all their life that are going to reap far more rewards than the most famous preachers. So it's the law of liberty. And he says there, there's, there, you're going to be, to so speak and act, excuse me, as those who are judged, that you're going to be examined by that. 
And there's a, it's a powerful motivating factor. I remember when I was younger, my, my dad asked me to mow the lawn every week because I, I had told him, look, I, I want to buy this brand new Nintendo set, which was my age. And he said, all right, well, I'm not just going to give it to you. I'm going to make you earn it. And every week I would have to mow, the law, mow our lawn, excuse me, front and back, do the edging. I do a lot of work. It was for $10 a week. Right? And so I had, it was a, the Nintendo costed $100, so it was taking me basically the entire summer to, to earn this game console that I wanted. And so I was working, but every week my, my dad would look at my work. So I knew I had to do a good job because there was going to be an accountability, but there's also going to be a reward at the end. Brethren, James argues that as Christians, we must live out our life, a, a life of love for others, because this is our duty, knowing that there's an accountability for us when we, when we stand before Jesus Christ. We want Him to say, well done, my faithful servant. And so James says, look, finally in verse 13, he lays out just another, just a general principle. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Now judgment is, he's warning once again those unbelievers in the church, look, that Mercy is evidence that you have a changed heart and a changed life. There's going to be a great white throne judgment. And there will be no mercy and no grace at God's judgment seats. Time for mercy, time for repentance, time to act on the call to believe in Jesus Christ is right now. You see, favoritism is the opposite of love. And if you're showing favoritism as a life, then you're demonstrating a, a heart of unbelief. And by the way, when it says mercy, it's not talking about just a feeling. We're not talking about pity or sadness at somebody's plight. We're talking about actively, thoughtfully showing love to others. Remember, love is, is an action verb. It's not an inward feeling. Passion's a feeling. When I was a kid, I was playing boomerang. Yeah, we have boomerangs in the United States. I was playing boomerang, and the first time I was doing that, I hit myself in the head. You know, it hits me in the head. Well, for those that don't show mercy, it will boomerang, and it's going to hit you. And at the time of judgment, there will be no mercy. He says, finally, mercy triumphs over judgment. He lays this out. Mercy boasts over Mercy boasts over a condemnation for us. There's, through Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation. We have received God's mercy. We should show it to others. Another way to say it is, is grace wins. Love wins in the end. It, mercy is just love acted out. And love is always demonstrated in our actions. Brethren, what we've seen today is that favoritism is a big deal. It is sin. It's an affront to the way God looks at others. We have seen the royal standard, and we are called to live by that standard. Love your neighbor as yourself. Partiality and favoritism, discrimination, all these things is, are inconsistent with God's truth. You know, mercy is a huge part of that. And when you think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, He says that... In the day of judgment, many will stand before him, and he will separate the goats and the sheep. And they will say, Why, Lord? And he said, Well, you've shown mercy. 
right? It's about, it's about showing love that demonstrates your faith, right? Once again, James lays this out and he says, if you say you have faith, you will live by God's word. Brethren, live according to God's standard. Favoritism, partiality, discrimination, those things. These are a big deal to God. It's sin. Love God and love others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you've given us your standard. What a high standard, a high calling it is uh, to love others as you love them. Lord, we know that's impossible apart from the new birth, a new heart. It's impossible apart from the strength that the Holy Spirit provides. Father, help us to look at others, not for what they can do for us. Not to look at others and say, are they like us? Not to look at others and think about what we can gain from it, but to to look at others as people. As men and women created in your image who are in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to not have cliques and factions within the church, but to esteem and love all within the body. To not look upon others just because they're they're badly, because they're different. Help us to love one another, to to be tolerant of one another in the church. Oh Lord, give us strength to love you as you deserve to be loved and to demonstrate that love in our obedience to your commands. Help us to love others others is more important than ourselves. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.